And like most of you, I'm sure I, I too enjoyed watching at least some of the um, Live 8 concert last night. I wish I'd watched more. There was something deeply exciting, I think, about 200,000 people gathered in solidarity with the poor. Got little doubt that the, um, uh, the Live 8 campaign and the Make Poverty History campaign will have an effect. We mustn't get too carried away in the euphoria. The truth is actually um, that after the Live Aid concert 20 years ago, since that day, Africa has, if anything, become more mired in poverty and corruption and disease. Partly that's due to Africa's terrible um, tendency to tolerate corruption and, and despotism. But actually also in the developed world, I fear, there is little evidence that we are profoundly committed at grassroots to making a difference, even if it costs us. Um, in the 1985 Live Aid campaign, for instance, um, uh, the, after the end of the year, when they added up, they found that there was no difference in the overall charitable giving of the British population. They just redistributed a little bit to live aid. And uh, I have to say, when it comes to general elections, our interests are far more parochial. Frankly, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had to uh, forget in the general election international issues, fight the general election on much more self-centred issues for the British people, and uh, then only once they got back into power um, uh, go back to giving their energies to uh, those vital matters. I'm not sure yet that hearts have been profoundly changed. I long for it. But let's not be too um, euphoric. It's actually my conviction that there's a deeper problem in the world which uh, high-profile concerts like last night cannot even touch. Because our problem at root is spiritual. That's what uh, Amos has been telling us as he has spoken to to, uh, Israel. They too were a society deeply mired in injustice. Some were rich, but those rich people trampled on uh, the poor. But you see, Amos is no Bob Geldof. He doesn't organise a campaign uh, using high-profile celebrities for... um, for publicity, he actually speaks alone in the name of the living God. And he speaks actually far more profoundly because he sees the root problem. The people have turned away from God. All other problems have stemmed from that fundamental one. In Africa at the moment there is strong evidence that actually when real Christianity really takes root 
in a, in a, in a culture, a, a real difference is made. It was the Christians who stood up to Idi Amin in Uganda and uh, Archbishop Lewum lost his life for it. It was the Christians who kept South Africa from falling apart as it moved on from uh, in, the, in the transition from apartheid. It's the Christians today, actually, in Zimbabwe who are caring for, the, uh, uh, for, for Mugabe's victims. And in our, in our country's history as well, it has been a spiritual revival that again and again has made the most profound uh, uh, impact on society. And one secular uh, historian, J.H. Plum, um, says uh, in his book on the 18th century that the most, uh, most significant figure in, the 18th century, in 18th century Britain was Wesley. Because you see, uh, it was the uh, revivals at the hands of Whitfield and the Wesleys that really transformed the problems of urban poverty uh, in, uh, in 18th century England, or it was, uh, uh, or it was the uh, 19th century evangelicals who uh, led the anti-slavery movement and stopped child labour and built schools and cared for the poor. Of course, Christianity is not primarily, actually, a, a movement against world poverty. In fact, if it becomes only that, then uh, Christianity in that generation always fades and dies out. Fundly, fundamentally, the Christian message is about people being reconciled to the living God. But when we come to know and love and serve that living God, then our whole lives actually cannot help but overflow into justice and mercy and compassion and sacrificial giving to others in this country and beyond. You know, so as I watch the Live 8 concert, I think to myself, well, yes, Sir Bob, it, it, it's not at all bad what you're doing. But no, Sir Bob, actually, there's something more exciting going on in this country. It's a movement which is growing and uh, which needs to grow so much more, but it is growing which is part of a global brotherhood and sisterhood which changes lives and communities and nations and eternity. It is real biblical Christianity. This morning I want to ask just one question of um, Amos chapter 7. It's uh, this one. What qualifies Amos to speak? What qualifies Amos to be used in that great project of God which goes throughout history of reforming every generation, of speaking his word into every generation, of seeing lives changed and people reconciled to God and justice increased? What qualifies Amos to speak? seems to me that it's at least one of the uh, questions which underlie this chapter, Amos ch uh, chapter 7. Because here, actually uniquely um, uh, in Amos's prophecy, we get a, a little glimpse into the private world of Amos himself, a little biography of who Amos is. God wants us to see what it was about Amos that qualified him to speak such austere words to his world. Perhaps it's his 
Perhaps God, God spotted his great oratorical ability. Perhaps he had a PhD in sociology and economics. Perhaps he had an MBA in management of voluntary organisations. Surely, he mu- it must have at least included a, a, a theology degree, but the answer is no, no, no. The qualifications that are mentioned, actually, in this chapter drawn out for us are his compassion for people and his call from God. We're going to see that as uh, we look at Amos as he interacts with his God and then Amos as he interacts with his, uh, 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 with his opponent, opponents. First of all then, <coughs> in verses uh, 1 to 9 of Amos 7, we're, we're looking, we're going to look at Amos interacting with his God and we will see um, how it draws out this character of Amos. The verses actually portray a disconcerting portrait of God as Amos does again and again. Amos uh, is warned by God of his intention to judge Israel. Verse 1, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, just as the second crop was, uh, was coming up. Of course, locusts would completely destroy the crop. It was terrifying. But in verse 3 we learn God was prepared to relent of that plan. He holds back his anger. Perhaps there's a clue as to why God's prepared to do that in the fact that it's mentioned it was after the king's share had been harvested. This this judgment of God within time was going to actually spare the king and yet we know that Jeroboam was chief amongst the offenders. In verse 4, Amos is shown another terrible plan of the of God. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. This is not a judgment within history like the locust. This is, this is cosmic judgment um, that will bring all of history to an end and destroy the, the, the seas themselves, the land itself. Here even the king will not escape. Does everyone deserve this catastrophic judgment? God relents again. Perhaps because even that, that, that form of judgment will not in the end be entirely right. Finally, God shows us, shows Amos his considered judgment. Verse 7. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. God will judge each person in the end by his straight, his perfectly upright standards, his plumb line. When God finally judges in that way, notice he doesn't withdraw that judgment. When God finally judges in that way, justice will be done. And he points out, his judgment will fall particularly on those who claim him as their own 
and yet you in reality have rejected him. Verse 9, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. This is the God that Amos has shown us again and again. An awesome God, sometimes who judges within history, but frankly, imperfectly within history. Who knows how many times he's held back that swarm of locusts precisely because it will not work out his justice properly. But let's not mistake. He knows what's upright. He has a plumb line. One day Jesus will come again and one day every person will stand before him and be judged. But actually that's not what I want us to focus on this morning. This morning I want us to notice Amos' role in those, those terrible deliberations of God. He appeals to, um, uh, to God on Israel's behalf. Verse uh, 2, When they had stripped the land, these locusts, when they'd stripped it clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Or verse 5, after the um, judgment uh, of fire. And I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. This is the Amos who's been excoriating them. This is the Amos who's warned of terrible judgment in public. But now we find behind closed doors, When he is before God, he is actually pleading for these very same people. It's not that God is hard-hearted and Amos is compassionate. God has chosen Amos precisely because he knows Amos' heart. The only prophets of his wrath whom God approves of are those who weep, who are filled with compassion who plead with God for people far, far more than they speak out against them. See, more than the, God is not only the God of judgment, He is the God of compassion. He is the God of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. He is the, he is the God of Jesus Christ who not only warned of hell, he also cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. And God only uses people who are like his son. Now, I hope this morning that that this, this place is filled with people who are thinking, I want to be used by God for however long I've got left to live. I may not be an Amos, but I do want to be used by God. Perhaps, actually, you've only got a few years left. None of us know that. Some of us perhaps can be, uh, have a higher degree of confidence that our years are short. Are you prepared to be used by God for the rest of your life? Some of us are younger and actually still making decisions. 
Will you make decisions that enables God to use you for the rest of your life? Some of us are in middle years and we find actually that those decisions uh, start closing off and we have less and less room to manoeuvre in our lives. Well, let me say, God can still use you and the qualification he is looking for us, young, middle-aged and old, is do you love this world? Do you have compassion on this world? Will you plead with God on behalf of this world? See, Amos shouldn't be caring for these people. These are not really his people. These are the northern kingdom, Israel. These are the people who, uh, um, frankly, had been a pain in the neck to the southern kingdom. But he does. Sovereign Lord, forgive, he says. Easy to teach the Bible, you know. To preach a good sermon. It's easy to be a good Christian example to people at work. Um, To be known for our honesty and uh, integrity and reliability. It's actually easy to tell our friends about Christ, though we may struggle and, uh, and feel that it's not. The biggest struggle in this world where to be used by God is to have compassion on people. Is to love them. Amos was useful to God. Was brought into a relationship with God where God almost deliberates with him and, 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 and invites him to answer back and to struggle and for them to wrestle together with this problem. Amos is allowed to do that because God knows this is the man who will say, Sovereign Lord, forgive. Is that you? To love the world's to no big chore. My big trouble's the man next door. Do you love the man next door? Amos is qualified to speak then, first of all, because he has compassion. That's what we find out as Amos interacts with his God. Then uh, uh, the chapter takes a turn in verses 10 to 17 where we uh, deal with Amos as he meets his uh, opponents. In fact, there is only one opponent, this man called Amaziah. Notice Amaziah um, uh, belongs to the religious establishment. He is the, the priest of Bethel. Religious establishments never, n- never do like God's uh, servants, as Jesus uh, uh, demonstrated and discovered in his own life. And the reason? The reason is because when religion is, uh, becomes allied with power, it always tends towards corruption. 
Amaziah, for instance, sees his, um, his job as priest of Bethel only as a living, not as a vocation to serve the living God. Earn your bread in Judah, he says in verse 12, very revealingly. He's far more interested in, uh, uh, in, in gold than in glory and he thinks Amos is. Amaziah has learned in this um, uh, powerful position of his to uh, pull the cords of power by judicious distortion. Verse 10, Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam king of Israel, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. Nothing better than to uh, make those in power suspicious of uh, an upstart like Amos. That'll keep Amaziah in power and Amos out. Amaziah has learned to sneer at the qualification of uh, God's servants. Get out, you seer, he says in, um, uh, in, in verse 12 again, as seers were a very much lesser um, uh, type of foreteller compared with prophets. Because in the end, you see, Amaziah and all those like him actually can't see any power beyond the king. They're only working within uh, um, uh, the power structures of the kingdom. Verse 13. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. See, um, every nation has its religious establishment and uh, that religious establishment always finds itself drawn to oppose God. It attracts people who are far more interested in power than in, uh, in serving God. Actually, so I think some of the strength and dynamism of, of, of our um, evangelical Anglican friends in the Anglican Church has come from the very fact that they have had to um, resist and oppose and fight the uh, uh, establishment which has always opposed them. It has given them a grit that sometimes we um, who have um, opted out of such situations do not have. Actually today though, the, uh, to be honest, the religious establishment in this country is not particularly Christian at all. It is the religiously driven liberal atheists. They're, they're the Amaziahs who feed distorted pictures of Christianity into the corridors of power, calling uh, evangelicals more recently the Christian Taliban. Amos is raising a conspiracy, says Amaziah. They're the Amaziahs who uh, uh, sneer at Christians, picking on uh, perhaps creationism or some ill-advised comment to ridicule uh, uh, evangelicals. Get out, you seer. They're the Amaziahs who insist that evangelicals must be excluded from any, any public role in society because they give thanks for food in a homeless people's refuge. Or they want to put Bibles into, buy, buy beds in a hospital. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. Now there will always be opposition to people who really speak up for God. But what is it that qualifies Amos? 
This is the real question we're asking. To be used in that environment. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He was not reared among the prophets. He had a totally different job. But God took hold of him. And after that, he could not help but speak. That's what qualifies you and I to be used by the living God. That we know the God of Jesus Christ. That we have heard him speak to us as we read his word, as we pray, as we commit ourselves to loving him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. That God has spoken to us. And let me say to you, very frankly, God may not take you out of your present situation as he did Amos. That doesn't make us second-hand class Christians. If we are humbly following him, then he will weave us into that great tapestry which is his church and he will find us our place. It is just important that there are ministers of mercy in the workplace, that there are ministers of God um, uh, ministers of God's word in churches. But just sometimes, Amos does call us to something new. And we, whether we are young or old, must be prepared for that. Is God doing that? See, if, if frankly he is not, then there is no shame in seeking to serve him with uh, uh, compassion and commitment and integrity in your current role. But if he is, dare you resist? There are a a significant proportion of us uh, um, here who actually do full-time gospel work of one, one, one sort or another, myself included. Actually, it's easy to lose these two qualifications when we are in that sort of work. It's easy to run out of energy to really care for people and wrestle with God on their behalf. It is easy to stop listening to God. It is a lifelong uh, um, uh, struggle and task But you see, for all of us, that's the same. There is no difference between us. It is not good enough for any Christian, in fact, to live their lives content that they barely know the living God. They've barely got an ounce of compassion. If we are to be used by God. And God must do that in our hearts. And we must struggle and pray and work and labour. Pray again. Until he has done that for us. Oh, but you say, I'm not qualified. 
I'm not naturally gifted. I'm not from the right back background. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a shepherd, says Amos. And frankly, you know, as I look at, uh, look at our nation, I think the elite universities are doing their fair share of uh, turning out um, gospel ministers and missionaries. I think there's another class of people missing. We are missing the William Careys, who started life as a cobbler and became the founder of the modern missionary movement. We are missing the John Bunyans, who was a tinker's son, but who from his prison cell influenced the world for centuries with his book Pilgrim's Progress. We are missing the Charles Haddon Spurgeons, who had virtually no formal education, but who came Victorian England's foremost preachers. We are missing the Gladys Aylwards, who started life at the beginning of the 20th century as a parlour maid and failed her exam when she applied for China Inland Mission but went to China anyway and became known throughout vast areas as the woman of virtue. Those are the people we are missing. We are missing people whose only qualification is that they love people and they know the living God. There is not a, not a one of us here who need be excluded from them. I want to ask you then, do you know the living God? There is no substitute. In the 16th century there was um, one such person who knew God. His name was Hugh Latimer. And um, he had the awesome privilege of preaching to uh, Henry VIII. And... um, caused Henry great offence on one occasion. He was commanded to return the next week and preach a sermon of apology. So he returned and he began his sermon by addressing himself. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you you are to speak this day? to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from where you come, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, who beholds all your ways and is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, in the face of God, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. You won't be surprised when I tell you that Latimer, not under Henry VIII, but later was finally martyred. He was actually burned at the stake in Oxford, just a mile from here, on October the 16th, 1555. On the fire, Latimer turned to his uh, fellow martyr, Nicholas Ridley, and said, 
Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. There's no doubt in my mind that the flame in this country is lower than it has been at some times. But in 450 years, that flame has not been put out. Because God raised up people who knew him. People who had compassion. So I'm asking you, will you keep the flame alight?